Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I think leadership has always been about two main things, imagination and courage. Is a quote from the 24th Prime Minister of Australia, Paul Keating, who played a central role in the progressive economic reforms in Australia pursued by the Labor government of the 80s and 90s, including the establishment of a national superannuation scheme. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today, the leader of one of the country's largest superannuation funds. Our guest today is Deanne Stewart, Chief Executive Officer of Aware Super, which has over 1.2 million members and $155 billion in funds under management. She was previously Chief Executive Officer of MetLife Australia, and before that held senior roles with BT Financial Group and Merrill Lynch Investment Management in New York. She also serves as a Director of the Association of Superannuation Funds of Australia. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Canada, Argentina and Norway, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory. In an engaging conversation, Deanne shares with us What's on the mind of a super fund leader in 2023, with a purpose to ensure the best possible retirement for Australians, impacting their members and their communities. We discuss the challenges and opportunities in Australia's unique system, and why we should look forward to some of the most exciting technological changes in the industry. So sit back and enjoy. The fear of going into the unknown. Deanne, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. We've come out of covid We've got low unemployment, we've got rising interest rates, there's a cost of living pressure. What's in the super fund manager's mind for 2023? Oh, there's a few things. Certainly, and you've started it there, certainly the degree of volatility in the investment markets. Ultimately, our number one job as super funds is to provide our members with the best possible retirement. And mm. so that volatility in the investment markets and where inflation is, what's happening globally in the markets and therefore the impact that that has on returns is definitely the number one thing for sure. But I'd also say the other side is the degree of change in the yes. super industry. It's been massive in these last couple of years. I mean, it's been massive in many industries, but certainly in super, both led from a regulatory 
uh, and government perspective, but yeah. also in terms of member expectation. So sort of digesting a lot of those regulatory changes is still front and centre for a lot of super funds. It's also changing the construct of the super industry. There's been huge consolidation yeah. in the super industry. But then in terms of member expectations, so members are expecting things to be instantaneous, yeah, okay. that they can you know, look at their phone and be able to do everything that they're wanting. And the super industry traditionally has not been as nimble that way. Yes. And certainly so spending, certainly from an aware super perspective, we're spending a lot of time and energy getting the whole experience right for members as well. So they're just a few things on my mind. <laughs> what's what's the greatest worry then? Oh, I think for sure it's more in terms of investment markets and okay. really making sure, not not just that you've got the portfolio right for the long term. Yep. You know, it's not a short-term game superannuation. Yep. It's long-term. But then secondly, making sure that your members come along with you in that journey because the worst thing that can happen for many members is to switch, you know, right in those moments of volatility when the markets are right down because then they often don't time it right. Yep. And then, so they're getting out at exactly the wrong moment and yep. then they're missing the complete rally. We saw that through that COVID, that downfall where the markets fell over 30% yep. globally. We saw a huge amount of members switch out at that moment and then not get the 30% rise. And that has massive impact for their retirement savings. So it's both the markets, but then also the education and help you're providing members is sort of front and centre for me. So just on that, the numbers I saw, maybe I am wrong, was it about 5 million Australians pulled their, their super, which is about, I think the numbers said a collective number of about $36 billion worth. That's correct. Around 60% of those Australians were under the age of 35. Is that right? Yeah, it was a significant amount that okay. were. So what do we think about that? That goes against the whole thing where super, you know, Mr. Keating many years ago, Mr. Hawke came with these ideas about, you know, forced savings, encouraging us to save. What, what do you actually think about that as a philosophy? Yeah, look, I, I mean, certainly what we're doing, particularly for those members that did take money out, is actually really educating and encouraging them to put money back in yeah. because certainly the longer you stay out, particularly when you're young, has massive impacts for your retirement savings. And you don't necessarily want to know or think about that when you're 22 years of age, for example. But the reality is, Every dollar you put in in your 20s, you've got to try and put in five times as much in your 50s to make that same gap um, up for your retirement. So it it ends up having huge implications. So for me, it does speak, and you've heard the government speak to it, about really settling on the purpose of superannuation, right? And I think this will be certainly a really key thing for the government to work through with consultation with the industry, right across the board with members. What is the purpose of super and really land on that? Because in my mind, it is huge. I mean, it, you know, is now over $3 trillion. It's the fourth largest pool of assets globally. So Mm -hmm. we sort of, we've got an incredible world-class super system but it's therefore very tempting to use it for all sorts of things and for all sorts of reasons versus yep. its purpose. And so really landing on that around retirement, retirement income, importantly, for all working Australians, I think is a really critical um, thing that we've got to get right. So bearing that in mind and bearing that we change government so regularly in this country, should there be an independent body, i.e. because if I'm looking at you know, maybe later on in life, they change of government, and I'm thinking, here yeah. they come in again. They're going to fiddle with my super. Where am I going to stand? I thought I signed up for this many years ago. I've been saving, done the right thing 
by everybody, including my country, and now they're going to change it, subject to change of leadership. Yeah. Should, should we allow this to happen, do you think? So I guess when you say an independent body, you're, you're thinking of something more like the RBA, that Correct, degree yeah. of independence. And I think, look, I think the idea certainly has merit, quite yeah, frankly. Okay. That being said, with that amount of money, as I said, $3 trillion, mm. and the degree of tax concessions that's in the super system, yeah. I think that would be a, a very difficult thing to achieve. But, you know, it certainly has merit. And what we hear from members again and again is, can you stop tinkering with the super system? Yeah. Because it's pretty it confusing. Is, it's really confusing. In fact, I've got <laughs> family members on the weekend that are like, oh, D, should I do this? Or what about this rule? And I'm like, oh, let me just look yeah, it up. Yeah. You know, I mean, because there are Page so, 22. <laughs> there are so many rules. Yeah. So as a super expert trying to keep ahead of the game and your head over it all, let alone just your average Australian that you know, super is not their life as much as we'd like it to be their life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really trying to create a stable superannuation system where the rules of the game don't change every year uh, is a really critical element too. And that's why I'm actually going back to the purpose of super. I yep. think that should help in many ways, but that's the optimist in me. So what is the purpose of super? What do you see it as? Yeah, uh, well, for me, rather than try and give the perfect sentence, I think the purpose of super has to have three elements to it. Mm -hmm. It has to have that it, its ultimate objective is about retirement income. Yes. The second is that I think it needs to work for all working Australians. And so that, that sense of equity has to be in there. And then thirdly, the fact that its role is to substitute or partly substitute the age pension. Yep. So for me, the purpose of super has really got to define those three things. So it's not about estate planning. It's not about many other aspects. It's not about uh, a quick fix for today's government's issues. It's about working Australians putting their hard-earned money away for their retirement income to help support the age pension or indeed substitute it altogether. So is that much different to what the original formulation was all about? Wasn't the aim to, to relieve us of the pressures of paying pensions? Totally. But I think the thing that keeps getting debated is, but if you have a short-term need, should you be able to just pull it out mm. versus is it truly for retirement? Yeah, okay. And does it work for all working Australians or is it just something for... So if you think about it, there's still a number of working Australians that don't have super today. So, for example, uh, solo or many SMEs don't have Absolutely. superannuation. Yep. Uh, and there's a number of uh, organisations that aren't paying superannuation appropriately either. So okay. I think they are the aspects that I think need to be worked on. Okay. And what about measurement of wealth? Where does that fit into it? If I'm well off, does that still fit into the category I'm allowed to have super? Yeah, totally. But I think that this is where retirement income and that word and the meaning of that is really important okay. because what it is, is it's not there to create a huge amount of wealth that then either just simply pass down to the next generation and keep them wealthy. Yeah. It is about income for your retirement. Yeah. So that is where the, the debate needs to occur is, does it just allow complete estate <laughs> planning or actually is it about retirement income? And for me, it's about retirement income. So what's retirement income then? Because you're going to hear the others say, I have retired. That's yeah. my super. Yeah. I've got the right to pass that down. Like I've got the right to pass other things down to my family if I choose to do so or donate elsewhere. Correct. So so the income bit is it's there for you to use in retirement. Yeah. If that makes sense. So it's your income because it, obviously 
with retirement. You're not necessarily earning that full income. So it's to provide you with that, you know, per annum income that you can live off, you and your family can live off. So for me, that's the really important aspect. Its design is not necessarily there to be passed down to other generations. It's not to say that there won't be super left that gets passed down. Mm -hmm. And the really important thing there is because of the tax concessions, right? It's important in the sense of all the dollars that need to be spent in terms of (laughs) a budget, you need to make sure that the tax concessions are fair, ultimately, and that they are more equitable in a superannuation sense. Dan, so from what you've seen in the last period of time, uh, the last 15, 20 years in, in your career, has governments used super effectively, do you think? I think by and large, uh, the government, when you say used super, I think the government by and large has continued to really support the three huge principles of superannuation that make it so good, which is that it's mandated, yeah. that it's preserved until retirement yeah. uh, and that it's for the majority of working Australians. And so if you look at some of the changes that have occurred, they've actually really kept that at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. I think for me where it's tinkered and not kept those three core principles that makes our super system such a world-class system yeah. is probably in that 15 years where the super system's been let down a bit. Okay. Now you say world class. How do we compare just out of interest against the you know four hundred one k, the pension schemes in the UK? Like just out of interest, how do we? So the four hundred one k in the US. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. So I talk a fair bit to my counterparts in the US, in Canada, yeah. in UK. They wish they had this system. Okay. They absolutely do because if you look at four hundred one k, it's not mandated, and so. What you actually do see very much is the wealthy doing very well by the system and okay. uh, low income workers really not being able to benefit from it yeah, right. and the concessions that are involved, et cetera. And so there's much more disparity and inequality in the system in the US and many other systems. So the fact that we've got it mandated and preserved uh, is certainly where many countries are wanting to go because they recognise that that, while not necessarily perfect for everyone, as a whole system, that is actually the genius of the system that actually enables that power of compound interest, that magic pudding. <laughs> yep. And that compound, yes. it ends up with many working Australians having more in retirement that they than they ever, ever thought possible and it has such a change to the dignity of people's lives in retirement. Do you think Australians really appreciate super enough? I think by and large, and, and you know what, I, I actually think it. what I notice is it depends where you're at in your life stage, yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> and it depends where your balance is at. But certainly the many members that I talk to, they are actually quite involved in their super, mm-hmm. very, they see the changes that and the importance of it for their future and for their retirement. And I think more so, as the super system is now maturing and balances are getting larger and more and more now are retiring with their super and seeing the difference that that makes, I think that it's really becoming a really important part of the psyche in Australia. Okay. Part of the Australian psyche. Well, you're, <laughs> you're at the helm. I of told one you of, I was an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you're at the helm of one of the largest super funds in this country. 
And it's an industry that went through what, what during the time when you were finishing university, actually, the Hawke-Keating era of change. Mm -hmm. Now, recently, Dr. Jim Chalmers, the Australian treasurer, has put forward a new vision for capitalism. What are your thoughts on the paper and the ramifications for the Australian economy and any impact we should be considering in regards to super? Well, to go back to exactly your original, when the super system as we know it today began, it was yeah. just over 30 years ago. That's so right. we literally celebrated yeah. 30 years last year um, with the super guarantee being in place, starting at 3% and now heading towards 12%. So in terms of the Jim Chalmers uh, essay yeah. in, in uh, the monthly, uh, having read it, uh, as a superannuation fund, I actually get the heart of the philosophy because it's actually very aligned to, in a way, the mandate and mindset of superannuation funds. And let me explain what I yeah. mean by that, which is that at the heart of it, corporate's doing really well and capitalism is really critical because ultimately that ends up with better shareholder returns and better returns for our members. Yes. But it needs to be sustainable and enduring. And you actually do need to take into consideration in that context the externalities and the things that can actually have real impact on communities and the environment and society mm -hmm. because we're not looking for a quick buck. We're there for the long term. If you think about it, a member that joins Aware Super today, they may be retiring in 2070. That's right, yeah. And so as an investor, we've got to think with a really mm. long-term mindset. And so when we invest in corporates or entities, we really want to make sure that they are looking in a sustainable way. And so from that perspective, being really capitalist and really going after really good returns is important, but they need to do it in a way that is sustainable and that is meeting community expectations and that side of things. So at the heart of his essay, I think, is that philosophy and okay. that very much aligns to responsible investing, which is certainly what Aware Super is a huge supporter and proponent of, and it's the way that we look to invest because we're there for the long term. And what do you think of the debate you've seen in the papers? you think it's been captured in the right manner? Look, it's good to see there's debate. We That's always, good. you yeah. know, we need that. Debate's good. Yeah. <laughs> Look, definitely. And and I think it's always good to have two sides to an argument. I, you know, I, I'm always up for an argument, so let's go. No, <laughs> um, but a number of articles that I've read, I'm like, I, I sort of feel like they've gone over the top. They're sort of making well, it sound the economy, like- the economy, the socialism, yeah. the Reds are back in yeah. type stuff. Which, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? The lens that you read an article mm. in. I read it going, okay, he's actually a huge supporter of capitalism, but actually realistic that governments do need to set frameworks. They do need to set an overall vision. Where's the country going? Yep. And then they actually need to collaborate with businesses, with investors, et cetera, to actually uh, head there. And instead of each party doing things completely separate and in, in, in isolation, you know, where do you look for win-win? That, for me, uh, is a really important aspect. A really good example of that, for me, is climate change. Okay. Ultimately, as an investor, if you do not have the policy settings and the framework right at a federal and a state level, as an investor, that leads to huge amounts of uncertainty. So you either don't invest or you look for huge risk premium, right? And so that's an example where you actually need government, business and investors to actually have far more... Um, Synchronization, if I can use that as a word, mm -hmm. 
And so for me, that was the heart of what he was saying. Whereas I think there was there was probably a few throwaway lines that you'd take it and you marginalise. It, it felt that it felt quite mainstream what he was saying versus mm. marginal. But I felt like a lot of the commentary made it sound like it was marginal. I'm like, that's actually the way investors and companies think. Do you think we got it right, but you know, like um, in the last oh, 24 months, we've had a number of people discuss um, reform around energy in this country. Yeah. Arthur or Martha changes every week. You're talking about, you know, clarity or synchrony a um, yeah. minute ago. Where, where are we at there? I think there's been huge positive strides yeah. over the last couple of years. And I, I would say in many ways, if I dare say it, uh, investors in the business community have led the way in many ways. Okay. Certainly as global investors, uh, we have worked with corporations around disclosing their climate change policies, their carbon emissions, where they're heading, particularly the major emitters, and really worked with those corporates on what their transition will be. Once again, back to where long-term investors. So while it may be making huge profits today, you know in 20 years' time, their business model is completely under threat. So I think business and investors have done a huge amount over the last couple of years. Then you've seen state governments. So you have a look here in New South Wales, I think the state government has done a huge amount putting out the energy roadmap, setting up the renewable zones, et cetera. Um, so they're well on the way. What you needed at a federal level is to create, you know, an overall federal level. Because if you think about it, the grid system is so critical, but so too is the policies and the frameworks. Mm. And a really big one that we certainly would support the government in their uh, in their focus this year is around climate change disclosure of corporates. So that for me is a really big one that they've said that they're going to uh, focus in on and bring on in because certainly as an investor, once again, as you're looking to invest in corporates, you need to know what are the risks and climate change is undoubtedly for our generation uh, and for the next huge period of time, one of the largest risks. So they are all aspects that I think are all heading in the right direction. Well, we're seeing stuff in the Northern Hemisphere. Contrary to that now, aren't we? Coal-fired power stations are coming back in. China's building them like no tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I just find that sometimes pretty interesting when we hear that debate. Yeah. Well, that being said, if you talk about North, Europe has led the way. It if has. You look it at, has. It, but, but it's suddenly put the handbrake on. Yeah. But if I go back to think uh, yes and no, what I'd say is they're reacting to a very uh, urgent and desperate. Yeah. <laughs> Um, situation at the moment uh, with Ukraine and the situation there. But if you look at, if you go back to things like expectations of corporates and their transition and their just transition, uh, their disclosures, et cetera, Europe is significantly ahead mm -hmm. of many parts of the world. And then you've got countries like UK, Singapore, even the US trying to sort of catch up from that perspective. And that's where I think we really support Australia really heading where the rest of the globe is because ultimately as a global investor, you know, we, we play in the global arena. We don't just play in Australia. So the greater consistency in standards helps corporates, helps investors and helps attract more capital into Australia as well. What sort of percentage of the portfolio is offshore? It's about 50-50. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you look at sort of when you look at both equity, uh, bonds, property mm. and infrastructure, about 50% of it is Australia-based and about 50% of it is offshore. We expect in years to come, as we continue to grow in size, more and more is likely to be 
international just simply because of the size of the Australian economy and the opportunities that internationally are presented. Okay. If I wanted back many, no, not many years, but university days. Oh, that's going okay. back a few. Okay. <laughs> that's only going back a few. <laughs> very, very few years, right? <laughs> exactly. You're at university, you're doing commerce, and Mr. Keating and Mr. Hawke are bringing in these reforms, as mm-hmm. we said, not that long ago. All right. Superannuation. Did that spark an interest for you during that time? Like, is it ironic that we've, you know, all these years later we're having this discussion or, or, or is it just serendipity? No, uh, definitely I remember, so I studied economics for the HSC yep. and then obviously doing commerce. So I remember yeah. the whole banana republic yeah. and that side. I had and you're hedging just, your bets working out which career you're going to take by doing bachelor <laughs> of commerce like we all did? Basically coming out and there was, you know, recession <laughs> and really high unemployment Um <laughs> No, for me, it wasn't necessarily anything about that or superannuation. Although, interestingly, I started in 93. There we are. I'm aging myself. And so I was right at the beginning of that SG. But at that point, I was more just curious about the world, curious about investing, curious about the globe and wanting to be part of that. And then really uh, understanding the power of superannuation came many years later. Okay. So the curiosity led to you being awarded a Fulbright Scholarship? Off to Yale you go? That must have changed your mind completely. Oh, I just loved it. I I knew that I wanted to. And this is MBA you're studying as yeah, well, right? Yes. Okay. So I knew that I really wanted to go. So I'd worked at BT for a number of years and I just had this thirst for going and traveling around the world. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do that, <laughs> I, I, might well, I might as well study. <laughs> yep. And so if I'm going to study, radio, let me, let me uh, apply for a few scholarships. And I'd been told about this amazing scholarship, the Fulbright. So I applied yep. and I was just so lucky. Well, it's one of the most prestigious there is, right? Oh, I was so lucky. So then being able to spend a couple of years at Yale and it was just this incredible, um, it is an incredible university, but from an MBA perspective, it's got this lovely mix of students that come. It's very known for its finance and had some of the top professors in the world, but it's also known for its not-for-profit background. So it had this really unique blend of students and some of them are my dearest friends for today. So yeah, it was an incredible two years. And I think when you when you move offshore, there's a terrific feeling of being anonymous. No one knows me. <laughs> no one can judge me. Yeah. I can be who I want to be. Yeah. And here I am at an Ivy League university. Yeah. Did it change you, you think, long term? Without a doubt. Okay. Without a doubt. I think a couple of things that had such an impact on me. One is I think you become much more of a global citizen and yeah. you realize the critical role Australia plays in the globe, but that, believe it or not, we are not the centre of the universe. Don't make the news too often, do we? <laughs> so, first of all, I think it was it was really the beginning of me thinking of myself as much more global, as a global citizen, and therefore my curiosity and my learning and everything from that point on, yeah, I think I think far more globally in my approach. But the second thing that I really loved, and I had read about this as it related to the American culture, but I hadn't really experienced it, which is there's something so amazing about the American culture of you can be anything you want to be so long as you're willing to put the time, energy, and devotion into it. Drive is so paramount to the success and sort of unlocking of your potential. And, And that entrepreneurial mindset is so infectious. 
so those two things I think have stayed with me hugely, but together with, as I said, it was such a beautiful blend of students and that as many finance students, there was not for profit. And there were so many people talking about what's your purpose in life? What impact do you want to have when it's all said and done? What is the impact you want to have on other humans, on the community? And I think that's really stayed with me as well. Um, I think I always had it, but it really, um, I feel like I've got so many amazing role models around the world that are constantly looking and shaping the world that has a really lovely impact. All right. So there you are. You've got the world at your feet. You passed. <laughs> you got your MBA. Top award. What were you going to do with it? Uh, at that point, when I finished my MBA, I knew that I still didn't have enough experience un- under my belt to sort of go full throttle. And interestingly, a couple of mentors of mine had said, you are such an ideas person. <laughs> what you need to learn is how to really solve problems and put them in a really sensible framework and communicate them. Because I was just like, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> I was probably very annoying when I was younger. <laughs> probably still annoying now. And so for me, working at a management consulting firm like McKinsey & Company, yeah. for example, felt like such a natural way of building out my skill set and what was missing. Yep. And that's exactly what happened. Yep. So spending a number of years at McKinsey & Company, they – was that in the Just, US or was that where that was that? That was in London, actually. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's a great spot to do it. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Loved my time in London. But they have such a great training yeah. around no matter what problem comes at you as an executive, as a CEO, as a board member, how do you actually begin to solve that problem? Not be afraid of it, lean into it and actually methodically solve it. And then how do you really easily communicate that? to all of your stakeholders. And so that for me just felt like an amazing training ground. And those skills that I learned through that period, I use every day since. Yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah. And did you specialize in any particular area? Like in the UK, were you doing fin services or was it broader than that? It was broader than that, but I did do a lot in fin services, given fin services was my background, but I did a lot in retail and lots of other areas, but probably the majority were fin services right across Europe. And how long did you spend overseas? 11 years. Yeah, it was a pretty incredible time and I just loved it and I'm, I still miss it today, but I also love my life and <laughs> family here in Australia. After, um, what, after McKinsey's was Merrill's? Yes, then uh, I worked for Merrill Lynch in New York and was in their asset management business, actually, that's since been sold off to BlackRock, but okay. yeah, that was that was a so pretty New, amazing... So New York again, you get the buzz and the, uh, <laughs> and the, and the drive everywhere? Oh, absolutely. Uh, once again, I loved uh, my time in New York, both personally and yeah. professionally. And when I reflect on my time at Merrill Lynch... When I started there, and actually it was through uh, a McKinsey alumni network, which was pretty incredible, I was sort of thrown a problem. There was an international business unit that was losing money at that time, Mm -hmm. and they didn't know whether to shut it down or to actually really invest in it and that it could go somewhere. And so they sort of, I think they hired me as a cheap (laughs) strategy consultant um, under the guise of head of marketing, and uh, oh, I went in trivia, there. Trivia heading. <laughs> exactly. And did sort of six months, and I went, actually, you've got gold here, but you need to do 
this, this and this. And I think I was 28, 29 years of age at that time. And they turned around to me and they went, okay, great. You're now going to go and head that division internationally and really solve it for us. And it was brilliant because I couldn't be the strategist any longer. I was in execution mode, but also to be given that, afforded that opportunity at 28 or 29 years of age to run this international business unit. That for me is the power of backing someone's potential versus, you know, all of their experience. Yep, yep. And, and I've remembered that since about how important it is to really tap into people's potential and drive versus the fact that they've done it 50,000 times before. So why do they back you, you reckon? I think that in that six months that I got to know that business unit and spent a lot of time with all the different stakeholders, I'd like to think that the strategy and the vision that I put forward for that business unit made a huge amount of sense. And I think that in that, I obviously worked well with people and yeah. they, they were just willing. It was the chief operating officer who saw that potential in me and he said, here, go for it. Yeah. I have to admit, at the time when he offered it to me, I said, I actually cried. That was probably really? not the world's best move. <laughs> and I said to him, I can't do it. I don't think you've got the right person. And he, I'll never forget the day walking in his office, him telling me it and me crying. I still can't believe I did that. But um, he was like, you've got this. I back you and I'm here to support you every way. And he was a quirky guy, but I've never forgotten that and the power of that and how that really helped accelerate my progress and so I like to think I need to pay that forward to many other people as well. I'm going to make a sweeping generalization here. Mm. Too many women say no. I reckon the opportunities are out there left, right and center. Yeah. Now, I know we hear all the debate all day long in the press. Women don't get an opportunity. Okay, there's arguments either side. But when sometimes an opportunity turns up, they do what you did and say no. The blokes who maybe know when you're as good... <laughs> often would just put their hand up and run straight through that door. What's got to change? Yeah, it's it's a couple of things. And what you've picked up there is, a, I think, both a cultural aspect um, and in a really unconscious way, many women sort of are brought up and raised. And so that you're not feeling you're making a swooping statement, actually, there's a lot of research behind it. So the one that's often quoted is the INSEAD study where okay. they had a job interview guide and they had, I can't remember, they had thousands of people actually have a look at it and they all had the same qualifications and they had 10 things there. And basically you saw in general, women, if they didn't sort of tick just about every single box, they would say, actually, I'm probably not ready for that job. That's that's not right. And if men ticked a few of the boxes, they were like, oh, oh I'm your man. I'm, I'm overqualified. <laughs> I'm your man. <laughs> and so I'm exaggerating the study. But yeah, ultimately, yeah. that is really what the outcome showed. And so what I think out of that is two really key things. First of all, there's a real lesson there for women to back themselves and to have courage and to know that that might be something innate in them that maybe culturally that they've actually learned as a behaviour. So one is certainly on a woman's side to know that and to sort of, you know, lean into it and get past it. Okay. But secondly, I think there's a huge message also for males and leaders in general to know that and recognise that. And this is where mentoring and sponsoring people yep. 
becomes really important. When you're seeing them in action in their day job, you can see the potential, you can see what they're, and sometimes they can't see it in themselves. And so as a leader, you have an absolute responsibility in many ways to nurture them and to really make them believe in themselves and get the best out of people. So I think there's there's a message uh, for both in that, quite frankly. So let me just keep rolling with this one, okay? So I just find it really interesting. You're a Fulbright scholar. Mm-hmm. You're 28. You're in New York. COO comes in and says, I'd like you to take this opportunity. If it was me, I'd be running through the front door and say, <laughs> Game on, out to the pub tonight, celebrate, et cetera, et cetera. Why would you say no? What is the reason behind, in general, people saying no to something like that? Because what is the downside? Fear of failure? I think so, yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Uh, Look, uh, I think, well, I think there's a couple of things. I think I have a significant amount of self-belief and confidence. So. I've often wondered, okay, so if you've got self-belief and confidence, why did you still cry and Mm. say no? And I think for me, there's also a degree of, while I do have that confidence, I think there is an underlying, hang on, I may not be good enough for this, that fear of going into the unknown, right? And, And so courage plays a huge role. And so often... I bring that example up in many different conversations that I have, particularly with younger people coming through, because courage is so important. It's such an important trait of leadership. And that is that moment where, wow, if he did not back my potential and put me in that situation, I could have easily drawn back because of fear, fear of the unknown and lack of courage in that moment. And so I've often reflected on that. And I think a lot of people that know me well now would say, wow, she's pretty bold and courageous individual. But I think part of that is learned, quite frankly, because, yeah, sometimes it's easier to say no and stay within a world that you're really comfortable with. Yes, I see the greatest Mm. risk during that time if I was the COO. Yeah. You've been sitting on the sideline as a consultant previously. Yeah. Now you're going to make the big call of running an operation. Yeah. To my mind, that's the biggest factor, but to your mind, it was fear of failure. Yeah. So very, very different how we're looking at the same sort of problem in this regard. Yeah. yeah but okay. keep, it, keep in mind, while at McKinsey & Company, I'd led teams. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that they were, <laughs> when you lead a team at McKinsey, no offense to everyone working in management consulting, because you are amazing human beings, but they are full of, you know, oh, very high achiever, insecure abs- high achievers. Absolutely. <laughs> Whereas certainly uh, many teams, you've got so many people from all walks of life that have so many different motivations. And for me, that was in a way the first time I was leading not just a team that was really diverse and really different. It was international. You know, it was hybrid before we all knew the word hybrid. You think about they were all virtual. They were sitting in Asia. They were sitting in Latin America. They were sitting in Europe. So there was that side of it. But also, I had not really led a team like that before. So it was all so new. And the other part of it was that there was a couple of people in that uh, team that were far more senior than me. And it was like, well, hang on a moment. How's that all going to work? So there was a lot of dynamics to deal with as a 28-year-old. So how did it all work? So there must have been some terrific learnings here. There were. And once again, it is often a moment where I'm like, wow, there was a lot of growth and learning in that experience. One was right at the beginning, as I've just mentioned, but actually six months on, 
uh, after I'd been leading the team for about six months, Merrill Lynch did a 360-degree um, feedback. So that's where you get feedback from everyone yep. above you, uh, your peers, yep. uh, your direct reports, etc. And when I got the results of that 360-degree feedback, the feedback said to me, your peers and those above you think that you're great, doing a good job. Those that are directly reporting to you, you know, think that you're a relatively average leader. And oh, really? I was not, I did not like being average. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And read the anonymous verbatim. And I was like, wow, there's some pretty hard hitting messages here. And they were messages around, because I had to create the strategy in that first six months and then really begin to execute upon it. It was sort of my strategy, right? And the messages from the team were like, it's your strategy. It's your vision. You're not, uh, you're it's not, not, it's not ours. It's not ours. And so what yeah, I right. did do in that moment, once again, really learning, and I know vulnerability has become a real buzzword, is that in that moment, I was really vulnerable. I actually got an independent person to do a day with my team and I actually showed them all of the feedback. And I said, I actually don't care who's written it. What I care about is that it's really impacted you. It's impacted how you see me as a leader. And I really want to change. I really want to learn from this. I'm pretty young as a leader. Yep. And if you work with me, you be vulnerable as well because you've got to trust me that I'm not going to use it against you. And we had an incredible day. Uh, and I'll never forget that because that actually shaped and changed my leadership style and how important it is to really create strategy and a vision with huge input from your team, build it together, engage it. I think as the CEO, you absolutely have to have the vision and really challenge and make sure it's ambitious, but you've got to shape it and create it with your team. And so I learned such a valuable lesson about collaboration, leadership through that period of time as a really young leader. And yeah, it's certainly made me the leader I am today. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Deanne Stewart. In our next episode, I sit down with Cameron McIntyre, Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of CarSales.com. Do something cool has been a bit of a mantra of mine personally. I mean, life isn't a dress rehearsal, right? You only get one shot at it, so give it a good crack. Be sure to join us in our next episode. And now, back to the show. What actually is leadership then? Oh, that's a big philosophical question, yeah. isn't it? Um, or maybe under your heading. Well, I think for me... It's actually my philosophy. Uh, I would say uh, I really believe in what I call human-centered leadership. And okay. by that, certainly the role of a leader is to motivate a group of individuals to go after a collective goal or vision or strategy, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is at the heart what leadership is. It's then, well, what style or what type of leadership do you believe in? And for me, really human-centered leadership. And I often talk about the five C's involved in that, which starts with care. I think don't be a people leader if you don't care for people. I see so many people become people leaders because it's sort of their career trajectory versus they actually really give a damn for people. Okay. You're leading people. People leadership is, <laughs> by its very definition, you need to really be able to work with well, and really care out. for people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, courage. Yeah, okay. You've got to really care for people and have compassion because people's lives are so, you know, they're complex. You cannot be a robot. You cannot be 
100% professional, you know, 100% of the day. So the care, second is the courage that you've really got to set a bold, ambitious vision, but also have the courage to speak up, the courage to challenge, the courage to say no. That's a really important part of it. The third element of being really human-centered leader is actually realizing how important connections are. So for me, just a bit like what you do, which I think is fabulous, it's people's stories. It's how to connect with people, how to build relationships, because so much of what you do in business is around trust. So that's the third one for me. The fourth is clarity. So clarity of vision, clarity of your strategy, clarity of the priorities of the organization. And then the final one for me, which I love is curiosity. Mm. So you've got to be curious in people. You've got to be curious in the problem you're trying to solve. You've got to inquire rather than know it all. And I think you see too many leaders that are in that sort of, particularly that have come up fast, they feel like they've got to know it all versus be curious and ask questions and get the best out of other people. So for me, if you get those five things right, that makes a really human leader that can really motivate people and really get them to bring in that discretionary effort and go for gold. So what's culture then? Culture, uh, once again, many different definitions. You're picking the big ones here, aren't you? Um, Culture, I think, is my best view of culture is it's sort of the way people act, right? It's the behaviours, it's the values, it's what people often do when you're not in the room, how are they acting, and there are so many aspects to culture that I think it is one of the most important things in an organization because it is really does set the benchmark. It sets the standards. It sets the way people behave and act. And I spend a huge amount of time thinking about culture. I think culture is organic as well, as in it continues to grow and change and evolve. Culture isn't a static thing. It's very, once again, it's every human and how they're acting and behaving and so for me, cultures evolve and change, and you've got to be very intentional in how you set the culture and how you want it to grow and change, because if you're not intentional, it can go in the wrong direction quite quickly. And so you say you spend a lot of time thinking about culture, do you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really do. I guess to explain a little bit more, the reason why yeah. I spend a lot of time thinking about culture is its importance. I do yeah. believe as much as I am a strategist, I think culture does eat strategy for lunch or breakfast, whatever the saying is. And the reason I spend a lot of time thinking about it is that what you want to do is make sure that you're able to attract and retain the very best people and yeah. culture matters to people. But it it's also the secret source for how you get things done. So if you're actually in a bad culture or a toxic culture or a a culture that's got a lot of fear in it, even if that's not what you've set out to, then you'll find things come to an end. You'll find a huge amount of silo behavior. You'll find a huge amount of infighting occur. And I've seen that in so many organizations that I've worked in. So you've got to really make sure you're nurturing the culture and that you're constantly in touch with where it's at and where you need to It might be a little minor tinker or it might be a major change if you're going through massive transformation. And you've got to work out how to bring people on that journey because culture is made up by everyone in the organization and every way that they act and behave. So, yeah, so culture, culture's big. And certainly as a CEO, you've you've got to be constantly focused on it. How do you test it? You do it in many different ways. So, 
for me, uh, certainly from an aware super perspective, we're, yeah. we're literally going through a whole cultural audit at the moment as we speak, okay. and we're setting our next mm. version of our aspirational culture. Okay. And so the way that we're going about it is lots of, certainly it started with a survey and getting lots of input, but then we've done um, focus groups right around the organisation. We've done more than 40 focus groups, getting all sorts of input from senior leaders right through to frontline, right across the organisation to get a sense of how do they feel the culture is at today? What words are they using to describe it? Where's it good? Where's it not working? Then link it to the strategy. Okay, so if we're trying to achieve the following with our ambition, what's the culture that we need and where's the gap? So we're in that process at the moment of really defining where the gap is, where we want the future culture to go that really aligns to our strategy. And so, yeah, it's very much alive and organic. But just on it, Deanne, as a, as a leader, mm. where do you spend the time? Do you spend the time with the top execs, that's their role, and they'll filter it down, or do you spend it across the whole? Like, how do you do it? Both, both. Certainly, as I see your role as a CEO, a, a huge part of your role is actually to really engage and be incredibly approachable and to set, you know, to be a role model for the culture and the values of an organisation. And so I certainly spend a huge amount of time with the group exec, but I, I spend a huge amount of time right across the organisation. And that's over a variety of things. So whether it's things like weekly, I'll have coffee catch-ups. So they can either be virtual coffee catch-ups or they can be real coffee catch-ups, uh, depending on offices and where people are at. What are you looking for in those coffee catch-ups? A, a pulse, a sense of where's the culture? Where are people, what are people feeling? What's working? What's not working? How do they feel the culture is? So I'll do that with both people that have been here for a long time, but I'll, I, I also make a real point of uh, having coffee catch-ups with our new starters and often in a yeah, collection. Okay. Okay. And it's really interesting hearing from them. Okay, in your first 90 days, what have your observations of this organisation been? And inevitably, because they're relatively new, they'll all tell you the lovely things like, oh, I can't believe it's such a caring environment. People are so supportive. Okay, great. Now what's slightly weird or, you know, we need to change here. Mm -hmm. And They'll be a little bit more reserved, yes. but if they see that there's just no, that I'm genuinely w listening and wanting to know, they'll really open up. And it's such a perfect way of getting a pulse on the culture and engaging people. So they are some of the things that I do. And for me, going back to communication, communication as a CEO is so critical. So I do a weekly note out to all of the team. So, so that, a note is a email or is it a email. video or what is it? Bit of both, bit of both. Uh, most weeks it's an email, but probably okay. once a month I'll do it as a video, have a bit of a jam. <laughs> um, always a bit dangerous. And for me, it's trying to be real. It's trying to make sure that each week I'm communicating sort of the key things that are going on in the organisation, but I also try and humanise it. So, you know, what have I been up to? What am I up to on the weekend? So that actually you're seen as a real human. I remember coming as a junior individual coming up and seeing, you know, group execs or CEOs yeah. and and wishing that they were more approachable In at times. Days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so for me, I think but if were, you were they, make, were they approachable, you reckon? Possibly. Back yeah. to possibly, but I don't know. Some were amazing at reaching out to people and making people feel that it's okay to speak up, that it's okay to have a chat. Others were not. And yeah, it was work your way up. Work your way up. Yep. What are you speaking to me for? Very hierarchical. Yep. And back to our conversation about how do you actually really engage? What's your role in the culture? 
you need to come across, I think, as a CEO, someone people can talk to that's very approachable because otherwise people won't tell you the truth. And one of the biggest dangers of a CEO is that you have a whole bunch of sycophants around you and you actually never hear the truth and ultimately that ends in a blunder of sunshine that you could have avoided if people could speak up and people could tell you what's really going on with either success of a project, the culture, or indeed whether you're hitting your strategy or not. Did you have that experience once? For me personally? Yeah, the sycophants sitting around and giving you all the yeses you need to know. Oh, look, you definitely come across people like that, yeah. right, for, for sure. There's definitely people that feel that they need to tell you what you want to hear as opposed to what you need to know. Yeah. Um, your job is to try and make people feel as safe as possible to actually speak up, I think, and you've got to Good constantly point. work on that, particularly when you are in a position of power because naturally when you are in a position of power – you, um, it, it is by human nature much harder to speak up and give someone the information. So you've got to work doubly hard, I think. I'm going to come to your role in a second, but while we're on this role, the CEO, is it lonely at the top? I often hear that. I, I, I don't feel lonely, I okay. have to say. Right. I think there are moments where I'm like, oh, I wish I could share this problem with someone. <laughs> but I don't feel lonely. And the reason I say that is I think because I'd heard that so much, mm. I've been lucky enough to sort of surround myself with different friends in the industry, different yeah. people going through, you know, mm. that are in different leadership roles and be able to sort of coach each other and be able to share information in codes of silence, that yep. type of thing. Yep. I've had some really good mentors, but I would also say I've got a pretty pretty incredible group executive team as well that have that, yeah, you're not, that, you can't tell everything no I can't, can't no I can't but but a huge amount I can because I we not just I have been very I've been very deliberate in creating a group executive that is team first individual second and what I mean by that is you come across teams that are so I I I and they're all off they're all off trying to do great things in their fiefdoms, but yes. they really don't care about the enterprise. I think your role as a CEO when you're hiring a group exec, number one thing is to make sure they care about the enterprise first. And the reason why I bring that up into that bit of lonely, mm. if you actually have a team that is really gelling, that can have courageous conversations, that really care for each other, then you can actually bring way more of the issues to the table there because you know that they're going to actually have the right intent and try and solve them versus you having to do a lot of it as the CEO. That COO gives you the role. You're in the US. Did you do a good job? I'd like to think I did. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, if you look at it more in pure metrics, yes, we turned around the business. It went from being in the red to significantly in the black. We grew the team we ended up getting such significant market share that I don't think we could have got more market share if we tried. So okay. it was a very successful business. Yeah. So if you look back at you sitting there saying, I'm crying and I'm saying no to it, <laughs> was it all really when you think back, oh my God, what was this over? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I wish mm. we could all live our lives by hindsight. But no, I think the most important thing, which is so true, isn't it, is that when you look at those moments where you grow the most- yes. They are often moments that 
were really hard, were really challenging, or you actually screwed up. And the important bit there, I think, as a leader or as just as an individual, yeah. is it's how much do you self-reflect and how yeah. self-aware are you? Because you can learn huge amounts in those moments or you can just repeat them again and again. And so for me, one of the biggest lessons in life is spending enough time on self-reflection and being self-aware because that's where the growth comes from in those really <laughs> tough moments. Where did the big C and sense of confidence come in then? That must have boosted incredibly, hadn't it? Oh, it certainly did. I feel like I've had an inner level of confidence for most of my life. And I think it's very much from the way my parents raised me and the confidence that they instilled in me growing up in Bathurst. In Bathurst yeah, yeah. You know, they really it's did. All country, all country water, country is it? girl. <laughs> exactly. Um, but they were two teachers. And so education was really important. Learning, yeah. putting your head down, drive. But they also made me really believe in myself. And okay. so I think I've had that inner degree of confidence. Yes, I've had moments like crying in front of the COO, but I definitely know I've got that inner confidence in me. And I definitely know I owe that to my parents. Okay. You finally come back to Australia. How'd you find the transition? You've gone from the fast pace, the big apple, to little old Australia. Were your skills valued? It was harder than I thought. And I reckon it took me a good couple of years to settle. Um, mm. And it's funny as I say that out loud. I, I think I was valued in many ways in terms of just being able to put ideas on the table. And I, I, by that stage, I had a hell of a lot more experience to bring to the table. Yes. But it was interesting. What I, what I found when I came back was two things. One was you talk to people and, and you're like, yeah, I just went and studied and lived and worked overseas for 11 years. And they're like, oh, that's really interesting. Anyway, about yeah. this- um, Straight across. And I was Go like, on. oh, okay, you, yep. you've absolutely got no interest in what I've done or learned. Like that for me quite shocked me. Yeah. But then secondly, when I was talking to different people, you know, when I was starting to look at what role I would take- they would often go, oh, yeah, but you haven't done that experience in Australia. Oh, you don't know the Australian thing. And I'm like, give me a couple of months and I'll come up to speed on the rules and the laws and blah, blah, blah. But you've got 11 years of global experience uh -huh. here. Digital in the US was so ahead of where Australia was well, so no, behind. We've got a telephone system in Australia. <laughs> you know, there were so many things where I had sort of seen the very best globally and that was not being tapped into at all. So it's, there is something in the Australian, like there's so many amazing things about the Australian psyche, but I think at times we are way too quick to think homegrown is best as opposed to be really curious about what is going on in the globe and where is very best globally. And certainly going back to being a leader, you've got to have a global mindset because you've got to work out where is best practice? So even trying to work through hybrid, for example, mm -hmm. yes, it's important to talk to other local CEOs and see what's working, et cetera. But why not learn from where's the best hybrid globally, right? Yep. Yep. So, yeah. Fair to say when you return, your career fairly much accelerated? Yes and no. And very deliberately so. The reason I say yes and no in the sense of when I came back, I was pregnant with my second child. In fact, I was five months. And so huge credit to uh, my boss that employed me at that point, being five months <laughs> pregnant. So for the next couple of years, I, the best way of describing it, and I would say this to many people, is 
your career isn't a ladder, it's a lattice, right? And there's going to be different points in time where you might want to go up and that's the right move for you personally or your family. And there's times where you might go sideways or slightly diagonal. And there was a period of time there where I needed, quite frankly, to really, I wanted to be a great mum. I wanted to be there for my kids. And so I needed to make sure that my role was engaging, it was challenging, that I was learning, but it wasn't overwhelming that I couldn't also feel that I could be a really good mum. And that was, you know, there's tension there. Mm. So part of that was quite deliberate because I worked part-time for a period of time. And then when I was ready to be full-time and actually really accelerate from that point, the organisation supported me in that too. All right. So you've been in an industry which has gone through a fair amount of change in the last few years, Royal Commission, the Hain Commission. Were you surprised? You expecting it? Yes. Overdue? Yes. All the above, is it? All of the above. All of the above. So why was it allowed to happen? What was going wrong? Look, partly culture. You know, we've we've talked a fair bit about culture. I think it's true in many things, isn't there, about a pendulum. Uh, and I think the pendulum had gone way too much in one direction around quarterly, short-term focus, getting the profits, shareholder profits in the short term versus really going, actually, what is the purpose of a financial services entity? How did financial services entities begin? Who's at the heart of them? The customer. So I think that the pendulum had swung way too much to the left on that. But I also think they're probably, from a leadership culture perspective, all of that supported that. So it was very hard, I think, I think that there, the hard thing I think going through the Royal Commission is there are so many amazing people that work in financial services yep. that I think have really high integrity yep. and really high ethics. But it's a really good um, lesson in both groupthink and the power of culture that actually dictates actions people take, even if they know that they're not the right actions, because it's very hard to speak up in those cultures. So I think there was, it was a very culture and governance issues that were really going on at that time. So yes, it was overdue, and I think it's had huge change and implications for financial services. It certainly has in the superannuation industry. I think there's too much groupthink. Uh, group, you have to be alive to groupthink everywhere. I, I think we're kidding ourselves if you do not realise, I do not realise that there's a lot you do in life because of groupthink. I read the paper every day. It's groupthink everywhere. It's groupthink. And most of it is unconscious of how we are influenced by others. So I'm, I'm also persecuted sometimes from being standing out, being going against groupthink unbelievably in this country. Totally, totally. I totally agree with you. We're, so we're not having debate here. Yeah, okay. What a shame. <laughs> There's way too much groupthink. So <laughs> you have to be alive to it, right? I think both as a CEO, this is where you need to make sure on your group executive team, mm. you've actually got some really good challenging. And and what that means is making sure you don't hire everyone that's like you, yeah. right? That doesn't think like you, et cetera. And it's so easy to hire everyone that's like you because it's much more enjoyable. <laughs> but that's where group think really is the genesis of, right? In a, in a corporate sense. And so- for me, at times where I've noticed the group executive almost too cosy, not challenging, I've been really deliberate 
in making sure the next hire is someone that's going to really challenge the system and challenge our thinking, challenge me, which at times is uncomfortable because you really want to make sure you've got those dynamics and that you bust group think and be really live to it. It's so hard. You think Australian business gets up and speaks enough? Not about, I'll come to the second part mm. about social points in a yeah. second. Yeah. But in just what, you know, policy, where we're going as a country, do you think we engage enough or we run for covers? I don't know we run for cover, but back to your point, you definitely get whacked a lot if you speak out around certain issues. So I think you've got to be really thoughtful on behalf of your organisation or your stakeholders when you do speak up and why are you speaking up. Yeah. And because it's such a small market and everyone knows everyone, I think (laughs) there's elements there that I think you've got to be quite thoughtful about. But I mean, I've certainly seen leaders speak up about certain issues and really um, take stance. And I think that that's been a real positive. I'd like to see more of it. And it's what I love about your series. You know, I I think the more we can have great leaders that show courage in moments that really matter, it's really critical. You're seeing that now and things like The Voice, for example. You know, now is a time to speak up and and have a strong voice on that. I'm going to come to that second. All right. Okay. What is a We're Super? What's the scale of the organisation? So, as you mentioned earlier, We're Super, uh, to give you context, is one of the largest super funds mm-hmm. here in Australia. It's uh, about $155 billion in funds under management. We've got about 1.2 million members. So, it's, it's huge and significant and an absolute privilege to run. The history, just so that you know, is it's open to all Australians, but where it began back in 1992 was actually as a public sector fund, first state super yep. out of the New South Wales government yep. when they needed to create an accumulation fund rather than just defined benefit. They needed a defined contribution fund that was independent of the New South Wales government. So that's where it began. Yep. And then through a series of different mergers. And quite a few. <laughs> quite a few through COVID. That was a good challenge. Um, we are now aware super as one organisation uh, and within the next couple of months about to go through a massive digital transformation that brings all of the systems, all of the products and one brand together being aware super. So it's a very big moment in time for us actually. Okay. And there's more consolidation coming, do you think, in the market? I think so. Yes. Yeah. I think, look, ultimately competition is really good. I'm a huge believer in competition, mm-hmm. but does Australia need 150 super funds. No, it doesn't. Mm. So I think, and also superannuation has become too important and too systemic. Like it it has such an impact on the economy, on corporate Australia. Influence is enormous, isn't it? You really need to make sure that, that they're really highly and effectively governed, managed to really, really high standards. So I do think consolidation is inevitable over the next five to 10 years I do think that there are roles for really large and significant super funds. I do think that you will still see some really key niche funds still exist and they will have really good value for their members and really differentiated in certain ways, but inevitably there will be consolidation. Yeah, because the cost of getting a new member is is, is massive, isn't it? The cost of new membership is significant, but ultimately So therefore also, I've got to go acquisition or fund then, don't I? Exactly. So in a world of choice, that is exactly the the case. And that's certainly the competitive environment that we're in. But secondly, ultimately, our jobs are to get the best possible returns and outcomes for our members so so that they can have the best uh, retirement. And so scale matters. So if I look at what we're in the middle of doing is really bringing together 
those three big tech systems, one brand, et cetera, and using that scale to lower costs to our members. And so I do think in the long run, that scale will play a really significant role in driving down fees and driving better net returns for members. Yeah, because do people change super funds often? More often than you think, actually, and, and increasingly so. I okay. think Australians right. have become more active with their super. If you look back eight years, a decade ago, there was very little movement from one super fund to another. Yep. Over the last, and certainly since the Hain Commission, there's been a lot more movement okay. as Australians have sat up and, and also really noticed as balances have got larger, okay, I need to make sure I'm putting this with a really good performing fund that's going to do the right thing by me. So those adverts work? <laughs> uh, that uh, well, certainly I can only speak from a Wear Super's perspective. They certainly do, and it, it's like any okay. product or service. You actually need to know it, yes, and know what it's about before you actually can consider it, yep. and then actually either invest or not. So Australians knowing your brand in a world of choice and competition is important. What's the competitive advantage then of a Wear Super compared to the others? Because it's really complex. If I'm trying to Look yeah. to put my money. I don't know where to go. I get so much advice. It's frustrating. It's true. And particularly with so many super funds out there. Look, a couple of things I'd say about Aware Super. I mean, it certainly is one of the top performing funds and one of the largest. So that is certainly a, a starter. But there's three things that are really standouts or I think quite distinct about Aware Super. Okay. First of all, I've already touched on one of them. Because of the type of member base that we've had and because we think really long term, responsible investing and a really sustainable approach is certainly at the heart of Aware Super. That is not the case for many other super funds. So that okay. is a real standout from Aware Super's perspective. Secondly, we've actually invested and probably have the broadest range of help and guidance and advice for our members. And we typically, relative to many other super funds, tend to have an older member base and really needing help, particularly as they're heading towards retirement and through into retirement. Back to what we were saying earlier, it's so complex. So helping super fund members navigate the system, but importantly, set themselves up for a really good retirement. It's the first time in their life they're contemplating not having an income, as we know it, a salary come through the door. So how do I budget? How do I set that up? So we've got the broadest range of really from digital to over the phone to face-to-face, -face, really good guidance, education and advice. And then the third thing, which is what I just mentioned a little earlier that we're about to launch, is really being creating the simplest member experience. So we're about to go live with, I think, quite a market-leading okay. digital-first experience for members where you will literally be able to do just about everything over the mobile and it will all be automated and 90-odd percent will be straight through. That is very unique in the super industry. So that's the third area that we think we'll have a really clear competitive advantage in, but watch this space. <laughs> when, um, when are we expecting that to happen? Uh, so we're going live end of April, May with that change, and then we'll obviously be rolling improvements from that point on. Okay. That form of technology, mm. and we talked about world-class systems before, is that available elsewhere in the world, in super funds or pension funds or 401ks, et cetera, or not? Uh, certainly with 401ks, for sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, what I would say is you see in different parts of the world, say Canada, yep. they're more defined benefit. Yep. And so 
they typically don't have as many apps like the Aware Super app or digital tools because defined benefit, it's almost like, well, you just keep it there until you retire, right? So they're not necessarily checking in every day and seeing what the balance is, et cetera, because it's defined benefit. Yes. So I think you'd find Australia and the US probably lead the way in the sort of digital interfaces and interaction with members. And that's certainly an area that we're looking to lead the way in. Should there be caps on super? Before I answer this, I probably would give the context. A, I hate tinkering with the super system. (laughs) But if you look at what the Retirement Income Review said about the super system, it said by and large, it is a world-class system that is sound, fair and efficient. Mm -hmm. But it said there's one area that still needs room for improvement and that's Mm -hmm. around equity. So if you think what, about... What is the definition of equity? I think sometimes that is so misconstrued. Yeah. So when I say it, and certainly what I think the Retirement Income Review is, when you look at that pool of tax concessions that the government is putting towards the super system, mm-hmm. is it going evenly distributed between low, middle and high income, or is it predominantly going to high income? And so at the moment, I would say a lot of the tax concessions of the super system while it does, and it's fantastic for all working Australians, does go more to the high net worth in terms of the tax concession. So a significant percentage. So for me, then when you ask about caps and back to the purpose of superannuation system, while I'm sort of loathed that it gets tinkered with further, you look at the super gap, Take women, women retiring with between 20 and 30% less super. Why? Because they are often on lower incomes. They take time out, et cetera. So there's things that need to occur in the super system to create a little bit more equity. So for me, having a cap that still enables high net worths to have a retirement income that is quite significant. Hold on. If if I'm a high net worth person, why are you penalising me if I've worked really hard to earn that income? Well, from a tax concession perspective, I want you to get significant tax concessions, but there has to be a limit, right? If they're government tax concessions and they're not going towards lower income, then ultimately you want to make that a more evenly distributed. So I think you look at setting a high cap. So for me, I think the industry's talked about a 5 million cap. I think that's a good starting point to think about. 5 million, it's hard to sort of argue that you should be getting much tax concessions beyond that in terms of retirement income. If retirement income is the purpose of superannuation, not estate planning, then that feels to me like a high level where there's still uh, really good growth for high net worths. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, being able to use some of that money and put it back into making it more equitable for those in low income or those taking time out uh, to raise children, et cetera. So I think that that, for me, feels a more equitable approach and something worthy of considering. But once again, I feel like you have to land on the purpose of super first before you can have that conversation. Okay. Talk us through the strategic investment alignment with ESG. So for me, ESG isn't this thing that sits on the side. It's actually completely integrated into the way that you look to invest. Because once again, I go back to we're investing for the medium and long term. And so you need to take today's financial risks into consideration, but you also need to take tomorrow's significant non-financial risks that might become tomorrow's financial risks. And at the heart of that is some of the environmental risks and opportunities, I might say, Mm -hmm. social risks and opportunities and how it's governed. So that's ESG. 
environment, social governance. And so the way that we look to invest is it starts with clearly the financials, the outlook, the cash flows of an organisation, but then looking at the risks and opportunities of that organisation. And so you naturally therefore integrate, well, what are the environmental, social and governance risks of this organisation? How do they compare to their peers? And how would we rate them as part of our overall financial and non-financial metrics for an organisation? So it's fully integrated in the way that we would look to invest in a company. Number one for you, should member superannuation funds be used for social justice causes? No, no. And I answer that very bluntly as a leading super fund in the responsible investment space. We are so clear and, you know, this is one of those debates that plays out in the media from time to time and it's like, really? We are so clear that our primary objective is to get the best possible returns for our members. And it's very competitive. That's how members judge you and how they should judge you on net returns, right? Not returns without considering fees, consider fees, net returns. So it's really competitive. So that is absolutely our goal. But we also need to consider those environmental, social and governance. And sometimes that gets skewed with all these just social justice causes. And Mm. it's like, No, they are actually key things that we need to integrate in the way that we think because we're long-term investors. We're not short-term. We don't want the quick buck where you forget about all the externalities that come back to bite you or you have really bad governance or really bad culture, which in the short-term may not matter, but in the long-term, it sure as hell does. So as an investor, you've really got to navigate that and really try and get as deeply into a corporate that you're investing in to understand those risks. That's what I call... But I would also say, and I'm coining a new term here for you, uh, there is the power of concentric thinking, right? I'm making this up. Mm-hmm. And in terms of I'm thinking of concentric circles, mm-hmm. we do look for opportunities to invest that have a really positive impact on society and on the communities and on our members' communities where they are that also are really good investment returns. Yeah, I wonder like what? Uh, affordable housing is a really good example. So we've really led the way here in Australia on the role that super funds can play in affordable housing. And we're really proud of that. Mm -hmm. We tried it first of all, as a pilot, because we were like, oh, okay, is this going to return? We have to get the very best returns for our members. And we know what returns we get in property elsewhere. So if we're not getting at least those returns, we're not going to do it. Right. So we did the pilot and we actually proved up that if you actually get build to rent, um, huge apartment blocks in areas that have got a lot of essential workers and do it in some of them in an affordable housing way, i.e. with a discount on their rent and others, actually you end up getting really sticky tenants that love that area that therefore have five minute commute to work rather than a two hour commute. And that stickiness and the capital growth end up what we've actually proved out through the portfolio is where in our affordable housing portfolio, we're getting better returns than many other property sectors. So we've been able to prove that up. We think we could invest more. Once again, this is an area that we're in uh, discussion with the government if there is actually additional incentives to do more in the affordable housing rather than the higher net worth build to rent. But that's an example in my mind where you can have a really positive impact but it has to hit all of the investment return hurdles and it can't be just a social justice cause. Okay. Too much overarching interference by government? In all honesty, if we cut some of the red tape, would we be better off? (laughs) 
Uh, look, I, I do think Australia on the whole, so this is not just a comment on superannuation, is highly regulated. And once again, talking about our international experiences, it's funny, it doesn't really hit you until you go and live it's elsewhere and then you come back. And it? I'm like, whoa, whoa, there's a lot of a lot of rules here. <laughs> so I think as a whole, as a society, for some reason, Australia does... Are we a bit dumbed we down? Do, we do. Yeah, we do go quick to what's the government's role and how do yeah. they put rules in place yeah. versus allow sort of it organically to sort itself out in the community. It It is a bit the Australian way, I think. Okay. With so many people about to retire in the next few years, has super done a good job? I think by and large it has. So if yeah, you okay. look at the, the returns of yeah. the major super funds like Aware Super and you look at – our job obviously is over the long term, not the short term. So you look over 10 years, a fund like Aware Super, we're 9, 10%. If you look at that and you compare that to putting your money in term deposits or other assets, that's actually a really good return for members. So I think on the whole, the super system has done a really good job. And actually, when you compare those returns to our pension uh, sister funds in other countries, we're also stack up as one of the best super systems from a return perspective as well. So, mm, Okay. Returns on really good execs. If I look at what bankers get paid and look at the super fund sector, which uh-huh. we do, yep. I've worked in your industry yep. across yep. your industry, <laughs> you're not the highest paid. No. No, we're you not. Big roles, enormous amount of capital. Should there be a closer look at that? Part of your purpose yeah. is also building the nation in some regard. Mm. I want the best in there, don't I? Yes, you do. Yeah. Um, look, the way I would answer that, particularly on the industry fund side, is that ultimately you are attracting people for a couple of reasons. Their ability to have a really positive impact, yes. their ability to work in an organisation that has a really strong purpose and really strong values and be aligned to that, and they need to feel that they're paid fairly. So if I look at that and I think about whether it's CEOs of the super funds or indeed talent within our super funds, I think you've certainly seen on the whole uh, REM rise over the last couple of years as we've continued to sort of bring in talent from many different walks of life. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you'll ever see it sky high or go as high as, say, your banks, et cetera. And I think part of it is that philosophy of saying- Members. Ultimately, it's about our members and about value and the purpose of these organisations. So I think you need to make sure that you are paying fairly and you're competitive, but I don't think that it's about paying top dollar. Okay. What do you think you could have done better? In life, at Aware Super, all of the above. (laughs) Um, Aware Super. Hmm. That's a good question. I'm, I'm in thinking mode. Look, Probably a couple of things that I would say, but the thing that stands out for me as you asked that question was ultimately through COVID, we did three mergers and integrated a business as well. And I often look at, so as I mentioned to you earlier, we're looking at the aspirational culture and where we need to, to go. I still see, and partly why we are doing this whole one organisation, one culture, I still see different parts of the organisation cling a little bit. Well, you know, we didn't, when we were at, you know, this is the way we used to do it. And I think, okay, how do we actually really speak of one voice and really feel like one culture? So then what that reflects on me as a CEO is, 
have I done enough to bring people on that journey and to really make them feel that they're part of this organisation? So part of me feels I'm hard on myself because it's all through COVID and, you know, it's much harder to get around and look people in the eye and make people feel really warm and welcome and part of the organisation. But there's inevitably a part that I could have done better, spending more time with different parts of the organisation to really listen and really make sure that their voices are reflected, their heritage is reflected and honoured as we move forward into the future. So that I think I could always do a better job at. You're exhausted after going through COVID? Or how, or how were you? Oh, I was exhausted leading into Christmas. <laughs> it's funny. I think I was more exhausted last year than the – I think. I agree. I think as I agree. COVID was unfolding, you were on a fair bit of adrenaline. And I think everyone was and everything was new and yeah. just trying to deal. Certainly as a leader, it was like I just need to make sure that my team and their well-being is looked after, that we – are firing on as many cylinders as we possibly and that we're getting hybrid working and it was all about them. Last year was then like, okay, what does this now all mean? What does the new world mean? And we're landing this massive transformation Mm. and the impacts of the mergers. So last year I found particularly exhausting. So I made sure this summer that I really took some really good time out and did a digital detox. So uh, my family and I and my extended family went to the Cook Islands Oh, did you? And the most beautiful thing about it, well, there's many beautiful things Phone about Cook Island. Phone didn't work. <laughs> you had to go to a hot spot. That's where the teenagers hung out. <laughs> so I had such a lovely just unwind to sort of really, really relax and really re-energise myself. And so I've come back feeling super energised for this year. We've got so many great things that we're doing, but almost too energetic, some in my team might say. Okay. So when this transformation is complete, what are we looking at? Oh, we are looking at really the most simplified member experience that exists in the industry. And the call? It's a big call. It is a big call, but genuinely that's what that's what we're after. That is the goal that we're after is being profoundly simple. And that's a big statement in superannuation. And so we are looking at really simplifying and then being the most helpful organization. So so being simple to deal with, that you can do most of it automatically online, but then when you need the help, you've got that help and guidance, both built in digitally, but then when you need to speak to someone or you need to see someone, we're there to really help you. That's us in a nutshell. That's what we're aiming for. Customer experience, is there enough? Has there been enough? Well, that's this you, you hear what I'm saying. That is yeah. so, for me, the best member outcomes are getting the very best investment returns. So what's going on in investment markets, as I said, is very challenging. But then you've got to have really good help and guidance and then a really simple experience. Because if you think about someone's financial well-being in their retirement, it isn't just about how much they've saved. It's about how confident they feel and their peace of mind. And so the more you can provide that help and guidance together with good returns, that's financial well-being. Mm. So during your career, you've had a few mentors? Or do, you, have, or do, or yeah. do you seek out mentors or how does it work? Both. So I have certainly sought out mentors yeah. um, and approached people. Um, I've had a few mentors also uh, gifted to me and I have also mentored and continue to mentor oh, a number of people as well. And yeah, yeah, I, I think mentoring is so important and so is coaching. And they're two very different, well, very different they intersect, but they're definitely different things. And I think that they're really important for different points in your life. Have you had a coach? 
Yes, I have. And I have one now. Okay. And benefits being? Oh, huge benefits, particularly as a CEO, back to this point of, you know, do you always get the truth from people and the fact that you've got some gnarly problems that you've got to work through, having a coach work with you on some of those problems. But I also think particularly back to that self-reflection and self-awareness, help you process how to be a better leader, how to actually think about what you're doing in a really deliberate way, but a way that you can be completely vulnerable, I think is really important because you never stop learning and you never stop trying to improve as a leader. And I think a coach is there to really support you in that, challenge you. So I've been very deliberate in choosing a coach that I thought was going to challenge me. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want someone that was like, oh, yeah, no, that sounds great. Well, I, I needed a coach that was like, uh, yeah, no, that's not really going to work, Deanne, or are you really, is that really their issue or is it really your issue? Yeah, right. And so I'm really enjoying that type of coaching to really challenge my thinking and I, I want to be better, you know, and I think a coach is there to help you be better. Where do you see the economy? Oh, million dollar question. Um, yeah, there's some good results starting to come on in. It's certainly. And I think, I mean, it. all eyes are on inflation, right? U- ultimately, yes, we've certainly seen it rise in the sevens. Um, yep. And so for me, that's where the eye, eye is at this point. Yep. I think from an Australian perspective, we may avoid the recession. How close um, do you reckon we'll get I think it will certainly come close. But as you said earlier, there is some good underlying growth. We've certainly got our eye on earnings at the moment because that will be the telltale sign. Mm. They were certainly stayed strong heading into December. We think that they'll come off a fair bit now. I think you've certainly seen the markets become much more optimistic uh, in January and early February with some of the news in the US. So I I think we're a little worried whether they're almost too optimistic and whether the chances of recession certainly in Europe and in the US is still pretty high and it's being sort of underrated in the markets. Where do you see unemployment then? Now, 3.4%, it's, un, you know, it's just an anomaly, right? It's incredible, right? isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, jobs growth is still really strong. And if you talk to, I know you're seeing really different signs in the US, particularly in the tech space, you're seeing a huge amount of layoffs. Yes. But I think certainly in an Australian context. Is it a huge amount of layoffs? Is it just going back to what it was? Certainly there's a fair bit of that. If you look at some of the tech layoffs lately, they're actually not even laying off the amount of people that they've bought in during COVID. So there's definitely a bit that's just self-correcting of exuberance, basically. Yeah. I think back to Australia, we're still seeing job growth very, very strong, and we're still seeing that there's a talent shortage out there. So I think it's still got a ways to go. Okay. When you finally flick the lights off in the office and walk out the door, what's going to be the legacy? What would you hope to be? Oh, certainly from an aware super perspective, I love our purpose, and it's to be a force for good to shape the best possible futures for our members, their families, and the community. So it's got that element of best possible member returns, but in doing that, being a force for good. So if I think I flick the lights off on my last day, I'd really want people to say, wow, through that period of time, we really grew as an organisation, we did the right thing by members, but we also had an incredibly positive impact on society, the community, and we really led the way on that. So for me, it's about the impact, quite frankly, uh, both on our members, that comes first and foremost and 
you know, I've got family members that are, <laughs> are members. I, I, I'm held to task on that all the time. But also knowing that we've made a difference back to that concentric circles and thinking. And if you were to look back at that young Deanne packing your bags, going off overseas, what advice would you give her now? Well, we've touched on, so there's two bits of advice, but we've touched on one, which is that self-belief and confidence bring that out with courage, that courage is so important and that actually taking risks and backing yourself is going to be so paramount to actually what you are able to achieve and actually how fulfilled you feel in life. So courage and being courageous and going for things is really important. But the other one that I think I've learned with a bit of life and experience is how important self-reflection and self-awareness is to Wisdom is the word that comes to mind. I think as you get older, you do get a bit wiser, don't you? And mm. that sort of almost inner peace or wisdom that you have from really knowing yourself, knowing what value you bring to the table, who you are, who you stand for, what your values are. I feel really comfortable in that space now of who I am. I don't know that I did in my 20s. Yeah. And I wish I worked that out earlier. So they would be my two bits of advice. On that Thank you very much for joining us today. Excellent. Thanks for the conversation, Greg. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to No Limitations. 